Welcome to Making a Scene, an Esplanade podcast about how art gets made. In this episode, we'll be talking to pianist Margaret Ling Tan and composer Huang Ruo about the stories they tell through music. I'm your host, Lin Yang, and I'm the lead programmer of the studios, Esplanade's longest-running platform for supporting Singapore's theatre scene. Many planned live performances had to be put on pause in 2020 due to COVID-19. And this year, we are very excited to be able to bring these performances back to our spaces. One of these features Margaret, a leading figure in experimental music and the world's first toy piano virtuoso. Today, she joins us from New York to talk about Dragon Ladies Don't Weep, a sonic portrait of her life that will make its Singapore debut as part of the studio's 2021 season. Joining Margaret in conversation is Huang Ruo, who is also based in New York. His work, A Dust in Time, will be part of Huayi's Chinese Festival of the Arts this year, and it is inspired by his experience of living through the pandemic. Welcome, Margaret and Huang Ruo. Thank you very, very much for being here. You're both joining us from New York, but you're not in the same location. So, Margaret, I understand that you're in Brooklyn and Huang Ruo, you're in the Bronx. And could you just quickly share how you first met? I think we had coffee uh, at Lincoln Center. And of course, we saw each other at concerts before then. Again, it was more than 10 years ago. New York is small, but also is big for that reason. And today, thank you so much again for bringing us all together, Mint and Esplanade. And actually, both of you have quite a lot in common. Margaret is from the hot and sunny island of Singapore, and Huang Ruo is from the hot and sunny island of Hainan in China. And you both started piano lessons when you were six years old and left home when you were very young to pursue your music studies. So Margaret, you moved to New York when you were 16 to study at the Juilliard, and you were the first woman and first Singaporean to earn a a doctorate in musical arts from Juilliard, and that was in 1971. Tell us a little bit about how that journey happened for you. I decided I wanted to come and study at this very famous music school. It was called the Juilliard School of Music. So I came and auditioned, and I got in, and that was that. It was one big adventure for me. I was fearless because I was so young, being 16, even though I had come from a very sheltered background. I had absolutely no fear about striking out on my own, coming to New York all by myself, not knowing anybody. New York was really the Wild West back in those days in the 60s. Yeah, I think when you are very self-confident and you project a certain kind of a certain kind of poise and bravura, nobody bothers you. I was never in any way intimidated or, now that I think back of it, discriminated against as an Asian, even though that was back in the 60s and that was leading into the Vietnam War days. And there were people who, being Asian as today, they are made scapegoats. But I was very lucky. Nothing ever happened to me. And being at Juilliard, I was a bit of a novelty because in those days there were very, very few Asian students. And unlike today, when Juilliard today is not more like 60% Asian, I really, really enjoyed my time at Juilliard. It was also a very sheltered existence. It was a goldfish bowl because you were totally protected. You would just go to class, practice the rest of the day for your weekly piano lesson. And then you'd make an occasional trip down to Carnegie Hall on the number one Broadway bus. And that was it. What a wonderful, idyllic, sheltered life I led. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and could you just talk a little bit about after Juilliard? What led you to base yourself in the US? After I graduated, 
I was thrust out into the great big world of New York City. Now I look back and realize that Juilliard in those days had done nothing to prepare you to face the realities of the real world outside. I managed to get by. As a pianist, you can always get by because you can teach piano lessons in music schools or privately. You can accompany and you can give the occasional concert. But it's certainly not sustainable to be a concert pianist in that sense because there's too much competition. Anyway, so I may do, and this went on for a while. And at a certain point, I got a bit tired of it and decided that I wanted to make a change in my career. I felt that being a classical pianist was not quite satisfying enough for me because I realized, I mean, think about it. How many ways are there to play the Chopin G minor ballad? right? I mean, everyone knows how the piece goes, who goes to concerts. Yes, and there are variations in interpretation between different pianists, but really, come on. So I decided I wanted to get out of that rat race, that game, and I decided to do something completely different with my life. Having a great fondness for animals, for dogs particularly, I decided I wanted to become a trainer for dogs that would help the handicapped. And I got involved with an organization that trained dogs for the deaf. I was very proud of the work I did with this organization. And maybe I would have gone on with them if they had continued to exist, but they did fold after a year or two. So at that point, I uh, was left without a profession, so to speak. But in all that time, I hadn't completely given up playing the piano and I still had some engagements left over that I had to fulfill, one of which was an Asian tour. So I decided to put together a program of music that would be not exactly one of your typical classical concert programs. I put together a program of music that had been influenced by my recent activities of listening to music from other cultures, what Henry Cowell, the composer, called world music. I listened to a lot of other music in that time that I was training dogs. And I decided that it would be interesting for Asian audiences to hear a program of music by Western composers influenced by Asian cultures, Asian philosophies, Asian aesthetics, so they would realize how rich their cultures were and what a big impact it had on the West. So in putting this program together, I started with Debussy as the fountainhead. And of course, I went on to include John Cage and Messiaen. And that's how I got to know John Cage. And that is a fascinating story in itself, which I will not tell because I tell it in detail in Dragon Ladies Don't Weep, my sonic memoir, or sonic portrait rather, that's going to be performed at the Esplanade in the beginning of April. But that became another turning point in my life. I feel there are very specific milestones in my life. One of them is ADBD, after dog, before dog, and the other <laughs> is um, ACBC, <laughs> after cage and before cage. <laughs> Yeah, so I've I, I told you about the ADBD and then hit this other milestone, the ACBC one. And that brought me back to music, but with a whole different perspective, completely different way of looking at music and at life. 
And Huang Ro, you left home at 12 to study music at the Shanghai Conservatory. And in 95, you made your way to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio, and then to Juilliard, where you also graduated with a doctorate. So could you just share with us a little bit about how that journey was for you? I was born in Hainan Island, and my father is also a composer. So he sent me away to Shanghai Conservatory of Music to study composition when I was 12. And the reason was very simple. He tried to teach me, but I was unteachable. And I guess for some parents, it's better to send the child far, far away so that they could really grow up. So I spent six years in Shanghai, studied with a wonderful teacher. The first lesson, he would tell me, if you want to write music, you need to learn how to be a good person first. That's your first lesson. Don't write anything, but just learn how to have good manner, good person. Only you could stand straight and then you could write music that has the qi. So his name is a Professor Deng Erbo. In China, they have something called bao song, which means they will send you to the college level without any examination. So I was originally being sent to the college, but my teacher told me that you are studying composition. You should go to, to the West to really see what contemporary music is like outside. So that's why I went to uh, Oberlin. It's just great to be on the same podcast with Margaret because one of my heroes is John Cage and we learned a great deal of the New York school, the experimental scene, Cage, Feldman, you know, Earl Brown, all these great icons when I was at Oberlin. And then after four years there, I went to Juilliard to do my master and a doctoral program. In a way, yes, I agree with Margaret very much. You feel very protected at Juilliard. The school really provides you the best of everything in the central location, close to all kinds of performances. And as students, we sometimes either get free tickets or discounted tickets. But I think we need to learn to survive, not after school, but during school as well. What made me to decide to stay so then I another great teacher, his name is Samuel Eller. So he taught me wonderful things. And one of the important things he had taught me is how to teach. He would tell me, Huang Ruo, no matter how busy you are, how much music you have to write, always save some time to teach even one or two students. Because being a composer, you need to able to pass on what you learned and able to, to help the young composers, the next generation. And in this way, I started to uh, teach in a university. When I was finishing my doctoral degree at Juilliard, I started from uh, SUNY Purchase, State University of New York. I did some teaching at Juilliard before that. And then now I teach at the new school, the Manor School of Music. Not teaching too much, just a few students. But in that way, I felt I listened to my teacher, but also teaching young students also helped me to keep learning new things as well. I think it's so wonderful that as both of you are talking about all these influences that have come into your life that has really brought you to the point where you all are now. So Margaret, you were talking a little bit about your meeting, your ACBC after CAGE, before CAGE. Could you share a little bit more about the influence that CAGE had in your practice, in your musical journey, I guess? Oh, I would say that you cannot really understand John Cage's music and the great influence he had on 
20th century music on the second half of the century, not music, but just all the arts, whether it was dance, poetry, art. He invented things like installation art, sound art, all those things would never have existed without John Cage. I feel very privileged to have known him for 11 years, the last 11 years of his life from 1981 till his death in 1992. You cannot really just play the music of John Cage and leave it at that. You really have to understand where he's coming from. You have to really immerse yourself in his writings, which really gives you an insight into how his mind works and how he evolved all these ideas and philosophies that led him to do the things that he did, these remarkable achievements that he and discoveries that he made in life and art. I would highly recommend reading John Cage's books, whether it's Silence or A Year from Monday, Empty Words, all these books will give you a tremendous insight into one of the great minds of the 20th century. Indian philosophy, he studied Zen Buddhism, and then he discovered the Chinese I Ching Book of Changes, which then became the way with which he composed his music and everything else he did in, in a creative sense. He used chance procedures that were created through the use of the I Ching. Now, going to Juilliard in those days, you were totally, totally immersed in the world of Western music. And meeting John Cage was this wonderful, refreshing renewal with my Asian roots. That's no other way I can put it. He really put me back in touch with a part of me that had really been neglected. And also, don't forget that I grew up in Singapore in the last days of empire, where your own culture, whether it's Chinese culture or Malay culture, was always, I wouldn't say it was secondary, but being a British colony meant that the British influence was very, very strong. So this was a very important revelation to me. And at the same time, John Cage loved the way I prepared the piano. He was very taken with the way I prepared the piano because I prepared it in a kind of way that was influenced by my innate Asian sensibilities, which was different from the way other Western musicians would prepare a piano. So we had this instant kind of spontaneous bond. And I realized I could not have been able to prepare the piano the way I did if I had come from a totally homogenous culture, but because Singapore is a multi-racial, multicultural society, and I heard so much of these other musics in my childhood, and this influenced the way I prepared the piano, because everyone says the prepared piano reminds them of the gamelan, and the gamelan sound, whether it's from, from Malay gamelan or Indonesian gamelan, is something that is embedded in my subconscious. So. I think this was definitely something that contributed to this particular way that I would prepare a piano. Huang Ro, I understand that your work is in a similar vein, draws references or inspiration from these different genres, including Western experimental music, Chinese folk songs, rock, pop and jazz. What is your approach to mixing and integrating these elements as a composer? I think my strategy or my way is not to be too conscious about everything I learned or everything I heard. So obviously, born and raised in China, my uh, Eastern root 
is something that always flow in my blood. It's something that is always there. Unconsciously, it will be there in my music in the past, in the present, and in the future. I often like to think that being an artist, no matter you are a performer or a composer, one is defined by your journey as a traveler. In this case, coming from Asia, living in the West, I live in the West more time than I live in Asia now. So that's one way I write music is not to ask, not to define, not to label, and not to be conscious of what I do. Because I know, after all, there are more than just East and West. There are many past, present, right, in the future, so vertically and horizontally, there's so many dimensions. So I created this technique and also this term called dimensionalism to use that to perceive music and also to write music, which really helps me because in dimensionalism, any kinds of music, no matter whatever style it is, whatever period, whatever media, every piece of music has dimensions. It's like a floating architecture. It has shape. It has its own breathing, own living, own destiny. So it helped me to perceive music and not to put label as, oh, this is better than that, or this is high art, or this is low art, you know, none of that. To me, whatever sounds interesting is wonderful music. And when I write, I try not to think too much of what I'm writing. So, for example, when I'm writing a symphonic work, I don't listen to other people's symphonic work. I listen to very different stuff so that I'm not being conscious or influenced by other things. I should also say that often people would label 20th and 21st century music with all kinds of trends. There's minimalism, there's serialism, there is uh, indeterminacy, there is... uh, new complexity, spectrum, you know, all these names to call it. But I think what is so true and also even more so now is what I call a a multiculturalism in music of today. And of course, Margaret, she has been and doing a lot of multiculturalism in her own as a performer. As a composer, this is also what I do. It's more than just Chinese culture and American culture, of course, is whatever I observe and listen to throughout my journey as an artist, as a composer. I grind them into bits and pieces like dust. They become a lot of DNA, unrecognizable, like powders, like flowers. And then you mix with water and then you, you create, and then you create all kinds of shape, all kinds of object after they became a, a material you could use. So I want to think of my music as a new creation of bringing DNAs of whatever I ex- experienced and reintegrate them together to create something new. That's a lovely metaphor. It, it really is a lovely metaphor. <laughs> By the way, I, I love cooking and making food. And of course, I love to eat. So I, my metaphor, not, sometimes, a lot of time, always go to a food. I often tell my students and whenever I do some kind of talk, I often ask people how many type of food they have been eating in a week period. Okay, some people eat uh, Malay food one day and the next day they eat Chinese food, the next day they make pasta, you know. So 
in our life, we experience all kinds of food all the time, or not to mention to just randomly throw some stuff to make something of your own, right? I hate to say this, but I think people are more open-minded to food than to contemporary music, unfortunately. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it's like, why can't they just love all kinds of music and be open to it, to really accept it, to try it? Okay, too spicy, so next time you don't eat the Sichuan spice. But at least you tried it, then you know it's spicy. But how could you say, oh, this is avant-garde, this is uh, a noise music, this or that, therefore I don't want to listen to it, or this music is too tonal. You know, I think people are very picky about sound and about music than food. So I hope one day we can really turn that around and to be equalized. Yes, I, I mean, I think that in your own ways, Margaret, I remember in the documentary Twinkle Dammit, you were talking about how people would come up to you after a concert and just say, I love avant-garde music. Thank you for introducing me to avant-garde music. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, in this film, Twinkle Dammit, made by a very talented young Chinese filmmaker from Chengdu, his name is Chuang Shu, that line where... People come up to me after a toy piano concert <laughs> and say to a toy piano and toys concert and say, Oh, we just love avant garde music. Thank you for introducing us to avant garde music, which I have done, mostly, but in a very right. seductive, insinuous, and insidious way. I've done that because they've enjoyed it very much, but not realized at the time that this music was written by young composers who are very much being creative in a cutting-edge kind of way, writing for toy instruments and toy pianos. And so it's a lovely way to introduce people to avant-garde music. I'm just sorry if they think that all avant-garde music sounds like that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, because they're going to be disappointed. <laughs> it's not always fun and games, is it? Twinkle Dammit is actually the name of one of the pieces that I play for toy piano. What I like about being a toy pianist or a toy concert pianist, <laughs> that's what I am, right? A toy concert pianist, is it gives me a chance to be funny and it gives me an opportunity to indulge my secret desire to be a sit-down comic. And the toy piano lends itself to humor, to comedy, as well as to nostalgia and to theater. Also, it lends itself to anything you want because there are no limits. <laughs> it's a new instrument. There are no limits. You can do anything you want with it as far as your imagination will take you and the composers too. So that's why people like to write for me for the toy piano. With Twinkle Dammit, it's a piece by David Wolfson and he gave me permission to make my own dramatization of it. I made a theatrical dramatization of it, which is actually post been posted on YouTube. And that dramatization, I turned it into a parody of my childhood piano lessons because the piece is based on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and <laughs> the frustration of, of childhood piano lessons. That's why it's called Twinkle, yeah. damn it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it really gave me a chance to vent my frustrations and also gives me a chance to be creative by taking the piece out of the realm of strictly music into theatre. Theatre is something I've become more and more involved with in the way I approach music. And that's how I landed up doing Dragon Ladies Don't Weep. 
That's a very good segue, actually, to the next portion about using music to tell stories, to tell biographies. So actually, Margaret, why don't you continue just talking about the process of Dragon Ladies Don't Weep? Um, why did you decide on this approach? I mean, it sounds like it was a natural extension or continuation yeah, of the... from what we're talking. Yes, the growing theatricality of your practice too. Right. All that theatricality <laughs> business really goes all the way back to John Cage. You see, everything goes back to John Cage. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I can always trace everything back to John Cage because John Cage had this wonderful equation that art equals life equals theatre. And this was made manifest in many, many of his works. Performance art wouldn't have happened without John Cage. As I said, neither would sound art or installation art became something very natural to me to gradually evolve from being a strict instrumentalist only into becoming a theatre artist, which I consider myself a theatre artist now rather than just a pianist. <laughs> just a pianist, right? <laughs> pianist, I'm not going <laughs> to like that. <laughs> right. I have made several forays into the realm of music and theatre the Marriage of Music and Theatre, the Singapore Festival of the Arts commissioned a work by Phyllis Chen, wonderful toy pianist, colleague of mine and composer. I chose her to write the piece for me, Curios, which is a beautiful, beautiful music and theatre piece, using only toy pianos, toy instruments and invented instruments back in 2015. But I would say Dragon Ladies Don't Weep is my first fully-fledged, total, no-holds-barred foray into theatre. It started out as a sonic memoir because I never got round to writing my real memoir. Maybe I'll still get round to it now. And I had such a great title. And someone said to me, when you have a great title, you should always realise the project. So I felt it was easier to make a sonic memoir than write it down, than a written memoir. So that's how it got started. And the producer, Singapore producer Go Ching Lee of Culture Link, then was very excited about the idea. She came on board and then she got the Australian theatre director, Tamara Solwick, involved. Tamara Solwick runs Chambermaid, C-H-A-M-B-E-R-M-A-D-E, <laughs> in Melbourne. And the dramaturg, Kok Heng Lun in Singapore, they put together this wonderful script that's made up entirely from my writings, observations and thoughts and all the scraps of paper that I had jotted down my ideas for my not written memoir. They asked me for them and they, from that they assembled this wonderfully entertaining script. So I'm very happy with the production and very, very grateful that I was at least able to give the world premiere at Asia Topa, Asia Triennial of the Performing Arts, which was held in Melbourne. I performed it on the last day of February last year, just before the world shut down to COVID. And I was on my way to the Sydney Opera House to do it and then go on to Singapore, to the Esplanade, which co-commissioned Dragon Ladies. But I was stopped in my tracks and never made it to Sydney or to Singapore. And now one year later, I am so grateful that Esplanade is willing and determined enough to reschedule the work 
in spite of these still fragile times that we live in. We're really looking forward to seeing it. I mean, I saw the performance in Melbourne and it was really, it was very striking. It was very poignant. And I wonder if you would be willing to share how was it like to get personal with your life story on stage? I didn't feel I was acting. I was just being very honest about my demons. Though the word OCD is never, ever used in it, you know that's what it's about. And Eric Griswold, who wrote the music for it, I chose him to write the music for it because he is a longtime collaborator and he understands where I'm coming from. And the music is very powerful. It's very post-minimalist, but in a very emotionally charged kind of way. And some of the titles of the various movements will give you an idea. It opens with a movement called Obsessive Precision. And there's another movement that is called Wearing Treads in the Carpet of My Mind. These are very descriptive titles that were taken from my texts that I had submitted to them. And I think they're very revealing, just the titles themselves of what the essence of the work is about. Not to say that there isn't humour and levity and there is lightness in the work as well. I dedicated the uh, Melbourne performance to John Cage, who features heavily in the piece, and my mother, who had recently passed away before we started production on the work. She was almost just short of 99. So it's a very personal piece, but it's also, it's a story, it's also entertainment. When I did the Melbourne premiere, it was the easiest thing in the world. It was far easier than, say, giving the world premiere of George Crumb's Metamorphosis, which he wrote for me in 2017. Somehow doing theatre and music combined is, is very natural and very effortless. It just feels so right. Well, thank you for sharing that, Margaret. Huang Ro, what, you know, about your work that translate life stories of UFA or Sun Yat-sen, what is your approach to that and how do you sort of condense a life into a work? You know, there's an old Chinese saying is you don't really see the mountain if you are in the mountain. So now I'm far away from my uh, old country now, and also my old past. I thought that I need to thank my uh, grandmother, who just a lady who grew up in the countryside in Hainan Island. She was never sent to school to learn anything. So she doesn't really read or write. But she is a big fan of Hainanese opera. So in those days, I don't know whether this is also true in Singapore, but in those days in Hainan, where you have uh, the big villages, the whole village, we have several hundred people all had the same last name, Huang, or came from the same ancestor. So all these big villages, there is a village theater. The so-called village theater is just a communal space. It's outdoor, open space. During the day, people would bring their rice to be dried, bring their clothes to be dry. At night, it became a place kids run around, have fun. And occasionally, there is a traditional Hainanese opera performances will be staged there. So my grandmother... I was very little then. We would take our own chair, bring our own food, just sit there and watch for hours until very late at night. So my musical education not started with uh, classical music, nor symphonic or chamber music, but it started with Chinese opera, just from seeing them. 
And that was one of the things really flowing in my blood. Whatever I write, the, the theatricality always there. Even with UFA, the piece I wrote, my chamber concerto number one, is not really a narrative story, but yes, it's a drama. So I prefer to use the word is theatrical, is dramatic, is a drama, almost like a drama theater piece for eight players. Now, when you talk about Dr. Sonia Sen, which is my first opera, so far I have written six operas now. So yes, with opera, that is a plot. Sometimes could be narrative, sometimes could be abstract. But yes, storytelling is one of the ways to create opera. So I did not really start writing opera until when I was 30 years old. But when I started writing Sonia Sen, as what they say, once the opera bug bites you, there's no return. So I slowly discovered my dramatic sense, actually, from writing opera. And then all this childhood memory, whenever I was working on a new opera, I was thinking, oh, that was similar to uh, this story I saw in uh, Chinese traditional opera. You know, there was some kind of, uh, in a way, opera, no matter it's Western or Eastern or whatever it is. A lot of operas is about love and death in that order. So no matter whatever story it is, the destiny often goes to those two ends. Yeah, so I, I'm a storyteller. I'm a dramaturg. I'm, I love drama. I love to uh, use music to create drama. And by the way, one more story to share was uh, my first Metropolitan Opera experience was when I was a student at Oblen. I drove with my friends to New York for spring break. And uh, I wanted to see an opera at the Metropolitan Opera. And at that time, there was an opera, which I did not know, called Sansom and Delilah. And it has Domingo's name, large print on the billboard. I was like, oh, I would love to see that, just to see Domingo singing. And then when I show up, he was not singing, he was conducting. So uh, it was a really innocent mistake. I did not go to see him conducting, of course, but I already for the ticket. So I did not know the opera, and it was so tiring to look at the mad title and then look at the stage. And then at some point, I just turned myself totally off from watching the translation, but really just focused on the stage and the music and the singing. And then I tried to guess what the story is about. And then I finished enjoying the opera. Actually, it was more enjoyable than being distracted. Actually, that taught me one thing about writing music and writing opera particularly, is if someone doesn't know what you are singing, if someone doesn't know the story, when they hear the music, hear the singing, could they feel it? Could they guess what this is about? If they can, then you are halfway there. You are half successful. And to me, that's music. If an opera or if a drama, the music only being a supplement, like a vitamin C to the story, to the words, then it doesn't really need music. Music should transform the plot, transform the drama, transform the words and to amplify, to emphasize, to enlarge, to slow down the time to enlarge the space, you know. That's a very interesting way of talking about how music communicates a sentiment or an emotion or a story, even if it's without words. So actually, could I just ask that you share a little bit about A Dust in Time? Because I understand that it was a creative response to the experience of living through the pandemic. This is what I call action art. 
being a composer and being a teacher, I like to label things with certain creative names. We all know what performance art is, in visual art particularly, but for music, performance art is common. Everybody, Margaret playing the piano is a performance artist. A violinist is a performance artist. But I would prefer to call this kind of piece called action art. Why? Because it is action or reaction to an event, to, in this case, a pandemic in real time, real space, and with real people. So to explain what I mean, basically, starting from January onwards, before Chinese New Year last year, for all of us who has Asian relatives living in Asia, we knew about this pandemic before the West knew about it. I remember telling people about this in New York, and no one really understand what I was trying to tell them. I tell them to wear masks. People think I'm crazy, you know? So I was affected by it since it started back in last January, emotionally. I worry about my family and worry about their safety. And when the pandemic hit us in the U.S., in New York, then I experienced it in person, in real time. So it does affect me not able to uh, carry on to write what I was writing. I remember that was in February, the end of February and uh, early March. I was singing with the Boston Symphony Orchestra for a piece of mine. That was my last live performance right before the pandemic shut everything down. And I was working on my sixth opera, Shanghai Jing, Book of Mountains Seas. I just could not go back to write that anymore you know i have an ending or to finish but i could not write it because it's not related to what i experienced in real time so i could not write anything for several weeks until one day i told myself you know what i should just write down how i feel so i have this tune in my head just keep reappearing i recorded myself i sang for my wife and kids one day and then i sat down i hear strings and then i created Every day, it's like writing your diary, writing your own memoir, right? So in this case, I write it with music. So every day, I keep writing, I keep writing. For several months, I created this one-hour-long piece, 15-minutes-long piece called A Dust in Time. It's for strings. It could be done by string quartet all the way up to string orchestra. And the reason I call the action art is because it was not a commission. It was not written for any particular person or ensemble or venue. It was just myself. It was a way to help myself to get out of this uh, darkness, this dark hole I fell in without any way to get out. And after I wrote it, I want to share it with as many people as possible. And that is part of what action art is. It is to create something organically, and to continuously creating it. So to me, the process of talking to people, getting it out there, sharing it, getting feedback, and performing it again in different places, having different reaction in different venue, that is all part of this piece. Because this piece is not done. Yes, I'm done writing it. But its life is not done. It keeps living. It keeps sending signals out. You keep receiving signals. So the action of a dust in time is a continuity forever. Keep going. So for Explanade, thankfully, we are able to perform live. It's truly a luxury. You know, going back to my food 
comparison, in this case, is really a delicacy now. This piece, it has been done online. It has been done live. It was done live in the Netherlands, by the way, the first day after they came out of the one-month lockdown. The Asko Schoenberg Ensemble performed it in the Musikerbau with live audience and only 35%. But again, it's live audience. I could not be there. I never been able to listen to this piece live myself. But I am so happy and so touched and so thankful that people could hear live, people could play live, and various festivals can really program it to give it a life to your audience. With regard to the pandemic, I just want to say that on Wednesday, the 20th of January, it was not only Happy Inauguration Day, but it also marked the first anniversary of when the virus was diagnosed to be what it was in the U.S. for the first time in Seattle. So on that day, on the evening of Inauguration Day, at the seven o'clock hour in the evening, which was the hour in the springtime where we used to daily honor the frontline workers in New York City by creating a joyful noise. Right, hitting the pots. Yeah, outdoor. People would lean out of their windows and they would cheer and they would bang pots and pans and I would go through my entire arsenal of percussion instruments and choose a different one each day to honor these frontline workers. But they petered out by, by the end of the summer. So at the seven o'clock hour, I took my Tibetan temple gong and I walked up and down and up and down my street in Brooklyn, striking the gong 400 times, once for every thousand people who had perished from COVID-19, because we have reached that fearsome unbelievable number of 400,000 and surpassed it. It took me about 33 minutes in which I realized that in that time of performing for whom the bell tolls, 66 more people had succumbed to the disease. A woman passed me on the block and she asked me what it was about. And I just said, 400,000 people. And then she caught up with me and she said, you don't know me, but I want to thank you for doing this. My mother-in-law just died from COVID last week. Margaret and Min, I think that is, how should I say, one day we can look back to this period of time, look back to what happened. And I think that brings us to the point of why being artist and uh, what can we do to be relevant. Anything we can do during this hard time to help people with what we can, I think, just make our life to be more, uh, how relevant. should I say, to be I more real. Relevant. Yeah, relevant and also more, more real in that sense. Margaret, I want to go back to what you said of to do something meaningful. Oh, remember, you, you went to uh, care for dogs, quit music back then. But this is the other way around, right? Bring us back to 
what we do is meaningful. Right. Well, John Cage always wanted and encouraged the artist to get out of his ivory tower. Oh, yeah. We must. That was we very must. important to him. In yeah. that piece that he wrote for Yoko Ono, which is one of my favorite works, it's a performance piece called Zero Minutes, Zero Seconds, where the instruction is simply to perform an action, an action to be formed by anyone in any way. But the whole list of conditions and one of the conditions which really, really makes the piece what it is for me. When you perform this work, in so doing, you fulfill your obligation in whole or in part to others. That line is the crux of it all. We have an obligation to others. Otherwise, it's just nothing but sheer narcissism what we do. So, oh. in a way, thank you, Hua Yi and Explanay, to keep art relevant and keep art alive for having us. It's a very somber, but I also think it's very heartfelt and really hits home for me listening to it. Thank you very much, Margaret and Huang Ruo, for being so generous with your stories, with your thoughts, and with everything that has happened in this past year. I feel very privileged to have been able to have this conversation. So thank you very much, thank both you. of you. It's been my pleasure and lovely to reconnect with you, Huang Ruo. Oh, we meet you. again and... We'll, we'll share In real news. life. That's right. Yes, That's once right. the pandemic is over. Making a Scene is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. Our theme music is from More Than We Know, from the album Sea Monster by the Steve McQueens, a band supported by the Esplanade under the Mosaic Associate Artists Initiative. Look for more episodes of Making a Scene at esplanade.com slash offstage and on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers.